And I'm kind of a podcast junkie a bit. Have any of you listened to the Maybe God podcast that's produced from here? Yeah. Fantastic. If you haven't yet, you've got to download it and listen to it. Honestly, it's like one of the highest production values as well as just thought-provoking content. And once you listen to it, you'll be so proud of your church because it's very cool what's, uh, what's happening through that. Um, but I am a bit of a podcast junkie. There's another podcast I listen to, not quite as proud of. It's called WTF. Um, so I'm not going to have anyone shout out and tell me what that means. That would be inappropriate for church. But, um, but I know a church that thought they knew what it meant. Uh, I saw this sign on the side of a building. I'm not sure they had it quite right. So, but they were, they were trying really hard. Uh, but most of us know what it stands for. The WTF podcast, I'm not here to, to promote it, but I just want to tell you kind of how God worked in me through listening to that. Uh, it's a talk show. The host is an actor. He's a comedian. He's a producer. Um, and it's an interview-style show where he goes pretty deep with his guests and just getting into their lives and what makes them tick with uh, various celebrities and finds out about the successes and the failures and the journey that they've been on. And he's pretty open. He's a, he claims to be agnostic, but he often turns the conversation to spirituality and just the longing for meaning in life. He talks pretty frankly about his divorces, his alcoholism, screw-ups, experimentation with various drugs. And, and as he's kind of vulnerable with his guests, they're really vulnerable with him uh, as well. And there was a time I was listening to this, and um, I don't know if you've ever been like me where God uses something like a, maybe just a TV show or just a non-religious song, and God just kind of uses it to kind of prick your heart, and you might find like welling up with tears or with conviction or with something, and, and that's how God used this, this podcast for me. And I began thinking, how is it that this guy who doesn't even believe in God is more open uh, and vulnerable uh, kind of about where he is in his life? Why is it as a Christian do I feel like so often I kind of have to hide my true self, like I can't expose the blackness of my heart. I was a pastor for um, 20 years and been in Christian ministry attached to it for almost 34 years now. And, and it seems like, and you might agree with me, it seems like that in the church world, you know, when you're a church attender, that there's, or you become a Christian, there's this like unwritten rule that you have to kind of like sign a pledge to be fake. Like you have to wear a mask. And it's almost like, you know, put this on, new Christian, and don't ever take it off because the whole thing crumbles apart. So we kind of we come and we look really good and we just kind of exist at a, a, an inauthentic level. But let me just kind of tell the truth about me. There are times I drop an F-bomb when I stub my toe or when my fighting Irish of Notre Dame lose a game. Uh, Aggies, you might identify with that, sorry. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I doubt whether prayer really works, like am I just wasting words? Uh, sometimes I read passages of the Bible that are challenging, like I feel like I almost have to check my brain at the door because I don't quite understand them. But for some reason in the church world, to admit any of those things is to admit weakness. And when we admit weakness, it's almost like we minimize the power of God, the power of Jesus in our lives. And people look to Christians, to churchgoers, to church leaders to have all the answers and none of the doubts so you kind of get the idea that you're supposed to keep your mouth shut, share your doubts in private with a therapist, and just keep on going, pretending like, yeah, I've got all this figured out. But that wears you out, doesn't it? And it wears me out. And I'm kind of tired of it. I'm kind of tired of following the rules. It wears you out. I'm tired of saying things that sound convincing but make no sense. Like you read it on a bumper sticker or on a Christian, cheesy Christian T-shirt, 
And you kind of nod your head, but in the, in, on the inside you're thinking, that is just so wrong. I just don't even know if I agree with that. I'm tired of smiling at someone who kind of says those Christianese kind of statements and nodding my head on the outside and on the inside I'm thinking, this is, this is a load of crap. Um, another confession I have is I still have a lot of questions. Even though I've been working with churches and in Christian ministry for over 30 years, I feel like the older I get, like the less I know. Like the fewer things, the, the, the more I read my Bible, the fewer things seem black and white. It's like, man, when I was 18, I had this all figured out. I knew everything, right? And now the older I get and the closer I move towards Jesus, it seems like the more questions I have. For example, I really don't know why God sometimes seems to answer prayer. Like when you're praying that someone won't die. And other times, it seems like the prayers just hit the ceiling and drop. I don't know why the Bible has stories of carnage, with sometimes God supposedly commanding the killing of women and children and even rape. It makes no sense to me. I don't know why Solomon is called in the Bible the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he had hundreds of wives and concubines. Concubines were there for the purpose of serving him sexually. Wisest man who ever lived? I don't get that. I don't know why sometimes people who have lots of theological degrees and have been doing ministry a whole lot longer than me, seem to be the least loving and the most selfish and the most self-absorbed people that I know. And you might be thinking, like, dude, why did Eric invite you here if you don't know anything? <laughs> and that'd be a valid question. Um, there's a lot of things I don't know, but I'm on a journey. And as I've gone through this journey, there are things that have become more crystal clear for me, even as some things have become muddier. As the foundations of what I've believed have sometimes been shaken, I've also made some discoveries that have given me, like, tremendous freedom. I've had, for me, I've had to peel away the trappings of Christianity, of religion, uh, some of the rules and the expectations and the exhausting obligations at times. But as I've done that, I think I've found the core of who Jesus is and, like, what he's calling us to, what he says is most important. And I want to un kind of unpack that for you today of what I've learned in this. So I'm going to start early in the pages of the New Testament. And I've read the New Testament a lot of times growing up and through my life. But recently, it kind of became more alive to me. It captured my attention. Let me paint the scene for you. God has not, early pages of Matthew, God has not spoken to humans in over 400 years. 400 years. So you might have begun to think that the stories that your parents and your grandparents have have told you about Abraham and Moses and Joshua. And I, you might have thought, maybe those are just fabricated stories because God is not, does not seem real. But suddenly, in the early pages of Matthew, God begins to send messages through angels, through visions. He begins to, uh, he first starts with Zechariah and tells Zechariah that his elderly wife is going to have a baby. And they were supposed to name him John. And then six months later, an angel appears to Mary. Mary's not married, she's not been with a man, and says, you're going to have a baby. Name him Jesus. And then it appears to Joseph in a dream and says, like, support your girlfriend. She's going to have a baby. It sounds weird, but support her in this. And then a choir of angels in front of the shepherds. So each of these times, though, it hasn't been God himself speaking. He's been sending messengers. Well, eventually the baby is born, grows up, becomes a man. And as far as we know, during those first 30 years of Jesus' life, God does not speak again to humans until he's 30 years old. And that's when everything changes. And let me set the scene for this. It's a day when John, the guy whose birth had been foretold, 
He's the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's out in the wilderness preaching. He's been doing this for a while. He's been attracting a lot of attention. People in the villages are hearing about this crazy guy that's out in the wilderness, and he's teaching, and people are going out there to listen. They're getting baptized. Matthew tells us people poured out of the surrounding villages to hear him speak. Many people thought John might be the Messiah. Maybe this is who they've been waiting for. But John knew that wasn't the case. He, he knew he was there to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, John was related to Jesus. They were probably second cousins, we're told by people that know stuff. And, uh, and he probably had grown up playing with John, uh, probably been told numbers of times, you know, about how their, uh, their births had been foretold by angels. I kind of picture them, Jesus and John, like sitting somewhere on a log in the woods as teenagers, maybe just talking about the plan God has for their lives. But on this particular day, far removed from those childhood memories, John's out there, he's preaching, he's baptizing. And as he's doing this, this group of religious leaders, they called them Pharisees, the pastors, the priests, the bishops of the day, they're kind of in the background, and they kind of come down into the river, and they're going to be baptized. It's like a cool thing. It's like a trending on Twitter kind of popular thing to do. And John sees this, and he sees that they're coming just because it's popular, and he blows up. And he says in Matthew 3, Brood of snakes, what do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to make any difference? Wow. I mean, you're not going to find John, like, winning any awards for influencing people. And, I mean, he's, he's just saying it straight. He knew that baptizing people wasn't going to change anyone's heart. And it frustrated him that, that this had become a popularity thing. Soon after this, Jesus shows up. It's his second cousin, same day. And Jesus comes down in the water to be baptized. And John knows this is the Messiah. This is the person I've been preaching about, preparing the way for. And they have a short argument uh, over who's going to baptize who. And Jesus wins because he's like Jesus. So he wins the argument. And John baptizes Jesus. <clears throat> and this is the time when God spoke for the first time in more than 400 years. He didn't do it through an angel this time. He didn't do it through a vision. He, he spoke out loud with people listening. It was public. It was undeniable. There were hundreds that were there. And so when God speaks for the first time, like in 400 years, you pay attention, right? Here's the verse in Matthew 3. It says, the moment Jesus came out of the baptismal waters, the skies opened up and he saw God's spirit. It looked like a dove descending and landing on him and along with the spirit, a voice. This is my son, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. One sentence, like it's all you, we get from the God of the universe, his first word in centuries, and he's introducing Jesus publicly for the first time. And he says that Jesus isn't marked by a tattoo, he's not marked by a dot on his head or by a certain clothes that he will wear or by a medical procedure or because he's taller than everyone or more attractive. It says he is marked by the love of God. What does that even mean? I mean, God could have said anything or could have said nothing at all. But he told us that his son Jesus was marked by his love. It can't be a coincidence that those were the words he spoke. I think we need to lean into that. Let me tell you about another time in the life of Jesus. We know it, Christians know it as the, the, uh, the Last Supper. The disciples probably just knew it as dinner. They didn't know it was the last time that they were going to get together with Jesus. Jesus knew this. Uh, but they were gathered together as they did often for this dinner and Jesus was going to be there, uh, knowing it was their last meal together. And they gathered around, and then Jesus gets up, 
takes off his robe, grabs a towel, and begins working his way around the table, washing the feet of his friends. John tells it this way in John 13. He said, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Uh, let me translate like the gravity of this for you. The verse says that Jesus knew he was the most powerful person on the planet. So what does he do? He gets on his knees and washes the feet of his friends. That doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, if you're the most powerful person on the planet, you command someone else to wash the feet. Or in Jesus' case, you just snap your fingers and the feet are clean. Or maybe you're not even thinking about dirty feet because you're running the universe. There's something that he was trying to teach his friends. He, he worked away his, his way around the table until everyone's feet were washed. It was one of the last actions that he would have in front of his group of disciples before his arrest and his subsequent death. And Jesus is giving his disciples and us an incredibly clear illustration on what it means to serve each other. He's like tearing down every social boundary, every preconceived notion of power and position and saying, this is how you love each other. And he follows that action by what we now know are kind of his last words, his final words. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's dying and you're there to hear their final words. Uh, earlier this year, a couple months ago, my, my dad passed away pretty suddenly, very healthy. And so I kind of replay in my head the last words I heard from him. And we were working together and we'd, he was moving in a new house and I was there for a weekend and we were building shelves and unpacking boxes and hanging stuff on the wall. And as I left, he, uh, he hugged me uh, twice. And my dad wasn't a big hugger. Hugged me in the house, hugged me as, we, as I stepped into my car and said, I love you, son. Uh, I'm really glad you came this weekend. And I replay that scene, I replay those words uh, over and over every day since then because they were, they were the last words I ever heard him speak. I think John's the same way. These are the last words. And so he's replaying that, this and he puts them down for us in writing. <clears throat> The disciples, again, didn't know these were going to be his final words, but Jesus did. And Jesus is trying to sum up, like, three years of hanging out with these guys, of all the conversations they've had, of the things he's taught them and showed them. And here's what he says, John 13, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Do you hear, like, a common theme there? I mean, it's only 35 words long, and yet Jesus repeats himself three times, love one another. I think it all comes down to love. I think if Jesus had been long-winded like a, a few preachers I know, he might have said it this way. He might have said, you're not going to be known by any secret handshakes. You're not going to be known by all the buildings that are going to look the same way with the same logos and branding, and we're going to have websites and products and everything. No, he said, the one thing that's going to set us apart as followers of Jesus is that you are marked by my love, that you love each other. Love that way, and it will change the world. And if anyone was like confused by like, oh, what does that mean? They just had to think back a few minutes to when Jesus was on his knees washing their feet. I don't know if you see this, but for me, this like, that like changes everything. Like if I use love as the one filter through which I run my, my words, my actions, my responses, my thoughts, the things I type when I'm mad and I'm on a Facebook post. If I 
run everything through that, it's got to change my life. If I think, if my filter is how would Jesus love? I mean, how would Jesus love coming up to an election on your Facebook page when you're in a fight or an argument with someone that disagrees with you politically? How would Jesus love someone who's contemplating an abortion? How would Jesus love the jerk who just cut me off in traffic? How would Jesus love your daughter and the man who just uh, got her pregnant and they're not married? How would Jesus love the gay friend who invites you to stand with him in his wedding? I think if love becomes the one filter through which we process every decision, every action, every word, it seems impossible that our lives wouldn't be different, that they wouldn't change. If I were marked by love as visible to you as a tattoo on my face or a scar or a burn, I think it would make a difference in your life as well. I know it sounds a little cliche. It almost sounds like the bumper sticker, <laughs> cheesy bumper sticker. And I'm not talking about, you know, a, a let's all sit in a circle and touch toes type of love or the wet and sappy Hallmark card kind of love. I'm talking about, Jesus was talking about, a, a life-changing, lay your life down for your friend kind of love. It's the type of love that enabled him not to react when he was being beaten and mocked. It's, a, it's the type of love that gave him the ability to forgive those in the moment that they were killing him. I want to make this really tangible and tell you a story that I heard of recently that I think makes this incredibly tangible. Uh, there's a woman named Megan Phelps Roper. Megan uh, Phelps Roper grew up in the shadow of Westboro Baptist Church. And maybe you've heard of them. This is this small little community in Kansas that likes to picket for military funerals and other such things, usually major crises they pick it for. The church website is godhatesfags.com. She tells you everything you need to know about this, this uh, organization. She grew up in that. Her dad was the pastor. She had 10 siblings. They all grew up in this. She was holding picket signs from the time she was five years old. When she turned about 18 or 19, they put her in charge of the digital strategy for this uh, church so that she could, th with them, kind of spread hate through uh, online media and, and uh, the digital world. And as she did that, she did it for years. She said most of the time, people parroted kind of, she'd treat, treat them hatefully, they would treat her hatefully. Sides were established, arguments were made, um, name-calling ensued. She said there was rage, there was hate, there was scorn. Hardly ever were any minds changed. That is until she crossed paths with someone who treated her with dignity, who actually bought into this thing called loving one another. They listened. They asked her questions. They wanted to understand her perspective. And this opened her eyes. And eventually, Megan walked away from Westboro. And in doing so, she knew her family would never speak to her again. But in the most unlikely of places, she found people who loved and accepted her. They, they totally disagreed with her and everything that she believed and preached her whole life. But they, helped, they started seeing things from her eyes. Let Megan talk about that in her words. I spent my first year away from home adrift with my younger sister, who had chosen to leave with me. We walked into an abyss, but we were shocked to find light and a way forward in the same communities we targeted for so long. David, my Jewishest friend from Twitter, invited us to spend time among a Jewish community in Los Angeles. We slept on couches in the home of a Hasidic rabbi and his wife and their four kids. The same rabbi that I'd protested three years earlier with a sign that said, your rabbi is a whore. 
We spent long hours talking about theology and Judaism and life while we washed dishes in their kosher kitchen and chopped vegetables for dinner. They treated us like family. They held nothing against us. And again, I was astonished. That's a clear example of someone, someones who, who were marked by love and had an impact on someone who was very much hateful about the other side. She'd been steeped for 20 years in intolerance and judgment, and she had her eyes open because of the way her enemies loved on her. But it's not just the extreme views of a sect like Westboro Baptist Church. It's becoming more common, isn't it, in the world around us, especially in an election season? Treating others with disgust and judgment is becoming the norm. Listen as Megan unpacks that a little bit. I can't help but see in our public discourse so many of the same destructive impulses that ruled my former church. We celebrate tolerance and diversity more than at any other time in memory, and still we grow more and more divided. We want good things, justice, equality, freedom, dignity, prosperity, but the path we've chosen looks so much like the one I walked away from four years ago. We've broken the world into us and them, only emerging from our bunkers long enough to lob rhetorical grenades at the other camp. We write off half the country as out-of-touch liberal elites or racist, misogynist bullies. No nuance, no complexity, no humanity. Even when someone does call for empathy and understanding for the other side, the conversation nearly always devolves into a debate about who deserves more empathy. And just as I learned to do, we routinely refuse to acknowledge the flaws in our positions or the merits in our opponents. Compromise is anathema. We even target people on our own side when they dare to question the party line. This path has brought us cruel sniping, deepening polarization, and even outbreaks of violence. I remember this path. It will not take us where we want to go. I imagine there's a little bit of conviction for all of us in her words. But the good thing is, like, we can actually do something about this. I mean, like, as an individual, I can do something about this. Uh, as we each strive to, make, uh, to be marked by love, it will make a difference in the world. One action, one response, one, one unexpected loving step at a time. We can listen better. We can find ways to find middle ground. We can work really hard to see a topic that we believe strongly about through someone else's eyes. And because there's so much anger in our world in 2018 and so much demeaning speech, our unexpected loving actions will be noticed. So I want to make this really tangible. And I want to leave you with three things that like, you could do today uh, to be on this path towards becoming more loving. First thing is just create space in your life. Create space, create margin in your life. Probably the, the number one clearest way for me to realize I'm not the poster child for love is when I'm driving in traffic in Houston. Uh, you might say, me too, you know. But uh, it's a 45-minute, you know, horn-honking, fast-paced, intense drive on my commutes into the city. And it's a clear indication that I've not yet arrived. i got to keep working on this. And you know what the secret is? The secret is margin. If I leave 45 minutes for a 45-minute drive, I'm going to be on edge. I'm not going to be real kind to the people that are in my way around me. But if I leave 75 minutes for a 45-minute drive, I'm more loving, I'm more patient, I'm more caring, I'm more understanding, I'm more tolerant of the people around me. And that's true in all of life. Everything in our culture is telling us to ignore margin, spend more money than you make, uh, work longer, work harder, drive faster, do more, buy more. 
But when we don't intentionally leave space in our life, we become individuals who are not very loving. And why is that? Because we got no time for that. It takes time. When you filled your schedule from the time you get up until you, the time you go to bed, then you don't have time for someone through the, throughout the day that comes across your path that just needs a listening ear or an encouraging word. I saw this happen a few years back. In I was in Miami. I was eating at a restaurant out on the patio, the sidewalk in front of the restaurant. So there's people walking by. And I see off to the distance this, what I assume was a homeless man come by, and he's stopping at each table. I'm assuming he's asking for money. And I can see the, the patrons of the restaurant getting upset with him and kind of shooing him away and looking for the wait staff to tell them, you know, get this guy away. He's, he's bothering us. He's interrupting. This guy comes up to the table next to me that was right on the sidewalk. There's two businessmen there, and I've been watching them for a while, and they had been engaged in some kind of a business transaction. And what they did and how they treated this man really marked me. He walked up, and I don't know what he said, but the gentleman said, uh, put, put his stuff down and said, uh, you know, I might be able to help with that, but I'd love to hear your story first. And for like 10 minutes, listened to this man's story, treated him with dignity, treated him with respect. A couple times said, tell me more about that, or said, I'm really sorry to hear that. And then 10 minutes, pulled a $20 bill out of his pocket and um, encouraged the man on his way. That marked me because that was so unexpected. Who has time for that, right? Someone has time for that if they have margin in their life, margin in their finances, so they have a $20 bill to help someone in need. So create margin in your life. Create space in your life. Um, get rid of the clutter. Make things a little bit more simple so that you have space for the people that need love around you. Second thing I would say is remove the things that make you less loving. Remove the things in your life, the people in your life that make you less loving. For me, just full confession here, a few years back, this was cable news. Cable news was not making me a more loving person. It was robbing my soul of any positivity that was left, making me negative and cynical. And it was like, it was like a habit. It was a couple hours every night that the TV was on, on one of the cable news channels. And then during the day, it was the talk radio shows. And after I removed that from my life, about six months later, I just was, began to think, what's different about my life? Because something definitely felt different. I had become less cynical toward politicians. Uh, I realized that many of them are hardworking people who love their country or their state or their, their city. They're trying to do the right thing. They need more of my prayers and, and less of my high and mighty criticism. I, I began to grow an appetite for hearing the other side, for, for listening to people with whom I didn't agree. I'd been getting a steady diet of commentators telling me what the other side thought, telling me that they were evil, telling me that they hated America, telling me that they were trying to take my kids and, and my rights. And so I, I had no interest in sitting down with those people to hear what they thought because I was already told what they thought. But by shutting it off, I became more compassionate. I really began to care about what people thought, even if it's far different from what I believe to my core. Like, why, how'd you get there? Why did you get there? Tell me more about that. I became more interested in what Jesus would do rather than the right thing, you know, that, that would happen in the next election. An example of that that's big for us in Houston, Texas, is uh, when I think about illegal immigration, when I think about it through the eyes of Jesus and how would he care for human beings who are trying to survive or trying to find a better life or trying to, to provide for their family, when I think about it that way, I land in a different place than I do when I just think it through logically or economically or politically. 
If my filter is first loving God and loving others, instead of trying to get someone elected or, or passing a law or making a point, it makes a big difference in my life and my attitude personally, my focus. So for me, it was cable news. That might not be you at all. For you, it might be, it might be a job that's just a, an unhealthy environment, and it makes you a, a less loving person. You might need to find a different work environment. It might be a person who's just, every time you're with them, they pull you into a cesspool of negativity and gossip, and it isn't, it isn't helpful for your life. You may need to uh, figure out ways to remove yourself, to put some boundaries in that relationship. Uh, you might need to change what you're reading or watching or listening to. Whatever it is, think through, what is it that is making me less loving? How can I remove some of that from my life? That's two. Number three, I stole this from Alcoholics Anonymous. Just do the next right thing. Like, there's probably something front of mind for many of us that's like, I know if I do this and I feel like God's already told me to, I just haven't done it yet. Just do the next right thing. Sometimes we, get, we see so many things that we need to do and fix and change that we just get paralyzed and so we do nothing. So you may be frustrated by the way that you've treated others or the words you've carelessly let slip out or the angry outburst that surprised even you. Or you may feel like you've burnt a lot of relational bridges and you can't fix everything overnight. You're not going to become the person that you want to and that you know you can be in an instant. But just do the next right thing. Take a step. And what is that for you? It's whatever comes first of mind for you. I'm going to give you 10 ideas and maybe one of these will will help for you. Number one, consider your greatest bias against a people group. Maybe it's Democrats. Maybe it's Republicans. Maybe it's a race. Maybe it's the LGBTQ community. Think about your biggest bias against a people group and figure out a way to enter into that culture for the purpose of seeking to understand, of seeing life through those people's eyes. Uh, number two, it might be something that in politics or religion. Maybe take time to build a relationship and ask questions with someone who believes the exact opposite of you. Instead of just fighting the point, see, ask questions, seek to understand. Uh, third, think of the family member. We're coming into Thanksgiving, right? Christmas holidays. Think of the family member that is the hardest person for you to love. They're annoying, they're obnoxious, they believe something completely different than you. Uh, what is it that you can do today, this week, to show them some un unusual and unexpected love? Fourth idea, pray for the car behind you in the drive-thru. I mean, that's, that's practical, right? Uh, fifth, choose to forgive someone whether they deserve it or not. You know, the person that's just like you're thinking about it every day and it's really making you mad. Choose to forgive. Uh, sixth, the next time someone attacks you in person or online, uh, find a way to diffuse their anger with a loving response. That's really hard to do, right? Uh, seven, give your child's teacher a gift certificate to a restaurant just because they're awesome, because they're with your children eight, eight hours a day. Uh, stop trying to win arguments. Uh, start a, a GoFundMe page or a, a fundraiser uh, for someone who's in need that doesn't have the leverage and the influence and the network that you have. Use your social capital to help someone who needs it. Uh, last one, speak life into someone. Just say the words, I believe in you to someone that is down on their luck or probably rarely hears those words. You may not be marked by love today, but you keep doing something loving and you keep taking steps in that and pretty soon you might just start to look like a disciple. I want to close with a verse. Um, these are Jesus' words and I think they're just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. This is Matthew 11. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me, 
Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn from the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Jesus says, keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So you might be like me, like overwhelmed by like the whole of the Bible, overwhelmed by balancing everything you're supposed to do and some of those exhausting obligations. I would say just forget about the rules. Forget trying to impress and make sure, making sure everyone, that you look good on Instagram. And that just wears you out, right? It's just relentless. The burden is heavy. Jesus was asked, uh, Eric talked about this last week. Jesus was asked what part of Scripture was the most important. And these religious leaders were trying to trick him because there were 613 laws. And the right answer was all of them. It's all equally important. But Jesus didn't give the right answer. He gave the real answer. He said, without hesitating, without blinking, he said, love God and love others. These are the most important. So there's a lot about scripture and theology that I don't understand, that you may not understand. But I think one thing that is super clear for me is I'm called to love. And I'm going to keep working on that like the rest of my life. I don't know that I'll ever be able to spike the ball on that, but I'm going to keep taking steps towards that because I believe that's what Jesus has called us to do. Let me pray. God, thank you for the story and for what you're doing here in, in the lives of uh, people that have come today. I pray that for all of us that you would help us find th something that we can do to become more loving. Help us remove the things that are making us less loving. Help us find space in our lives so we can be more observant of the people around us that need an encouraging word or just need someone to listen to. In Jesus' name, amen.